Our scripture reading this morning is taken from the Gospel of Mark, the New Testament book of Mark, chapter 11. And I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 11, and you'll find Mark 11 in your uh, church Bibles on page 717. And the verses will be also on the screen. Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you doing this? Tell him, The Lord needs it, and will send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, What are you doing, untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. This is God's word. Uh, Years ago, when my older son Benjamin was in grade school, we went to see the President of the United States. Do you remember when the President was here in our community back in the 90s? Uh, I just thought that was wonderful, because I'd never seen a sitting President live. And so, I'm an American, and I'm patriotic, I want to see my President. So on a winter morning, uh, Ben and I stood in line for almost two hours uh, as we were there uh, at the temple, the assembly hall, (laughs) and we waited to get in so that we could get our seat up in the nosebleed section. Well, once I got into the assembly hall, I thought for a moment that I was at the airport because... I mean, it was like I was about ready to board a plane. There, there was a metal detector, and then there uh, were uniformed Secret Service officers. And that had you know, not occurred to me before, that the Secret Service, there's a uniform division, you know. And so, uh, and they had their wands, and I mean, no stone was left unturned to ensure the security of our nation's chief executive. And... Uh, it was just an, an exciting, exciting morning for me, and, and you know, it was, uh, all of the seats were full, and the dynamic was just really, really wonderful, and I got to thinking, uh, what about the logistics are of all of this? I mean, we're just there for a few hours. I mean, weeks and months of preparation in planning, had to go in for that. Just had to. And, and I come to find out that there is a, 
There is in the White House, it's called the Office of Presidential Advance. And this particular office is responsible for all of the presidential visits that take place. And they even have a mission statement. And that mission statement, the mission of the Office of Presidential Advance, is to ensure that when the president, say, visits a community like ours, that it is a, it's a, a public relations success, it's a media success, it's a political success, it's a security success. I mean, it's a specific mission in terms of what goes on to this president. And then I got to thinking, my goodness, I mean, those are just uh, the logistics of getting into, you know, the temple. What about, and then you, you, you know, there's Air Force One. And Air Force One has to be ready so that the moment, you know, the president doesn't have to wait. He's the last one on and they go. That's the way Air Force One works. And, and then, of course, there's the, you know, there's the, there's the beast. You know what the beast is, don't you? That's the presidential limousine. And, oh, then there's the Secret Service. And they talk, you know, you could ask questions about the, 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 the beast if you want. Like, you know, is the, is the glass bulletproof? Well, they'll say yes to that. But then when you start asking about, well, what about the tires? I've heard that the, the tires can be shot through and the, and, and, and the vehicle can still go. And the, the Secret Service will say, well, let's just say that the president's vehicle is formidable. Let's just say that. Well, I've heard this about the, the presidential limousine. What do you say about that? Well, let's just say that the president's vehicle is formidable. And they're being what they are, secret. They're not going to tell you all about that, you know. All of the logistics that go on and the plans that take place for a presidential visit. And, and you know what they call the actual day of the president's arrival, don't you? Game day. That's what they call it. Game day. That's where, and, 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 and every minute of the visit is meticulously planned and articulated. There are, there are there's nothing, even, even the spontaneous moments are planned ahead. They're called off-the-record visits. So there's nothing left to chance when the president comes to town, my goodness, game day, huh? Uh, the only thing about our visit was it was a little hard leaving town, wasn't it? You remember what happened to Air Force One? You know, remember, you know, the pilot landed and then, you know, and then when he went to take off, he tried to cut that corner too soon and I think they got a new pilot after that. I don't know. It's interesting that this kind of advance for a regal leader, a nation's chief executive. I mean, this kind of protocol goes back all the way to the Roman Empire. When the emperor would visit one of the colonies in the empire, there was a specific protocol to greeting the king, the ruler, Caesar. There was. The, the, the city's Leaders would come outside the city, and, you know, the cities were walled back then. So they would go outside the city, and then the, the spiritual leaders of the city would follow, and the temple priests, and then the, the nobility of the city would follow, and then the citizens, and all of them would actually come outside the city to greet the king, and then escort the king back into the city. And you know one of the first 
places that the king would visit in the city was the temple. The temple. There was a protocol. There was a pattern. There was a specific uh, list of courtesies that was expected of the city for the chief executive to arrive. Now, all of these plans, both in the empire and in America, all of these protocols for presidential advance ride on one assumption. One assumption. And you know what that is? The assumption is that when the leader of the nation actually shows up, there will be a crowd to meet him. (laughs) That'd be embarrassing, wouldn't it? Air Force One flies into Willard, the door pops open, you know, and, and the trumpet goes dun 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 and no one's there. <laughs> no one. Or oh my goodness, let's just let's just kick it up a notch here. Because you let's say the president goes to Illinois or his home state, Chicago for heaven's sake. The door pops open. Nobody shows up. Say, oh, Randy, you're being, you know, well, okay, take our previous president. And, and he flies to Texas. You know, Texas isn't a state. It's a republic. So they go to, they, he flies into Texas to Dallas and he just gets, there's no one there. I mean, that would be terrible to snub the chief executive on arrival to his hometown. Huh? In fact, in, in the ancient world, A Roman historian tells us that a city once did that, snubbed the arrival, snubbed the game day of the magistrate, and the city was besieged. (laughs) Bad things can happen when we snub the leader. And who would do that anyway, really? I mean, who would do that? Who would be so, so rude and short-sighted and crude to snub the king upon the king's arrival? The king's, in the ancient world, parousia, coming, appearing. Who would be so bold as to ignore the king on game day? Who would do that? Mark's gospel, Mark's gospel tells us. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the significance of the verses that we read in Mark's gospel, the significance of Christ's triumphal entry into Jerusalem, the importance is not what happened. The importance is what didn't happen. Yeah. And before I get ahead of myself, let me just tell you where we're headed. I want to answer three questions about these verses. Uh, Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, I mean, is important enough. It's mentioned in all four Gospels. So there's something significant going on here. And I want to answer three questions. And the first is this. What was the point of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem? What message was he trying to communicate What did he want the people 
to understand about himself when he entered Jerusalem on that day. Jesus had entered Jerusalem many times in his ministry, but on that day, what was it he was communicating? That's question number one. The second question is, what was the response? How how did the people respond to Christ's entry into Jerusalem? And then the third question is quite personal. How will I respond? That's where we're going today. And and by the way, can I just say this? Here's here's why all this matters. And Katie hinted at this a little while ago. Why this matters, church family, has to do with, you know, listen, what kind, look up here for a minute, what kind of Jesus are you willing to worship? You know, some of us, some of us, some of us seek an aromatherapy Jesus, you know, Jesus that's just kind of warm and cuddly and wanting to calm our emotions and make us feel just really, <sighs> okay, well, these verses speak to that. Uh, some, of us want a, some of us want an Amazon.com Jesus. You know, you just, you, just, you just point and click with the mouse and if it's over 25 bucks, you get free shipping. Others of us are seeking a district attorney Jesus, and we want that Jesus to go after some people in our lives who are making our lives difficult. And then there's the vacation planner Jesus. Well, that's the Jesus that just wants it easy and predictable for us. And and, and what I'm trying to say is that these verses challenge us to dump our custom-made Christ idol and receive Jesus for who he really is. Well, who is he? Well, that's our first question, isn't it? The point. The point of Jesus' entry. And, and, and the point of Jesus' entry is Mark chapter 11, verse 10. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. There you go. Kingdom, that's the word kingdom that's the point that's the point that jesus was trying to make a kingdom is coming and and luke chapter uh, 19 verse 38 puts it this way blessed is the king who comes in the name of the lord don't you see jesus entry into jerusalem was to communicate in no uncertain terms the planning the preparation the advance team it was all to communicate in no uncertain terms that israel's long-awaited king has finally arrived the prophesied messiah the christ the anointed one he's here it's game day the arrival has come that's what jesus was trying to communicate that day in his entry into into jerusalem i mean for instance take a look at verse 2 in mark 11 jesus says to the disciples go to the village ahead of you and just as you enter it you will find a colt tied there and then it says which no one has ever ridden now that phrase which no one has ever that has royalty all over it you see mark didn't i don't think mark included that verse to try to communicate to us jesus ability as a horse whisperer because that's a royal phrase there a cult upon which no one has ridden because the king there is a let me put it this way The president doesn't ride in used cars. And and the presidential limousine is for the president and the president alone. And this cult 
No one else may ride the king's mount except for the king. And furthermore, in 1 Kings chapter 1, when David wanted to proclaim to to the nation that his son Solomon would be his successor, do you know what he did? He put Solomon on a colt. And that was the message, that was the signal, that was the word out to the entire nation, my son will succeed my throne. Oh my. Jesus, we don't ever see Jesus riding a colt in his ministry. This is the only time we ever see Jesus riding a colt. Any other time Jesus entered Jerusalem, he did it like you and I would. He would do it on, he did it on foot. But on that day, he rode a colt. And furthermore, only Jesus rode a colt on that day. Everybody else walked. Well, look, there's uh, verse 3. Jesus sent those disciples into the village and, you know, they're to untie this colt. And if they're questioned about it, Jesus gave them the password. And the password is this. The Lord needs it. Or the Lord has need of it. It's it's the only time here when Jesus calls himself Lord. Interesting, isn't it? The Lord has need of it. What's that? That's, 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 That's code. That's royalty talk. That's code. It's what, it's what scholars call the language of royal levy. The language of royal levy. You know, in our democracy, we have this thing called property rights. In a monarchy, in a kingdom, there's only one person who has the property rights, the king. And the language of royal uh, uh, levy says that at any place and at any time, the king may go to anyone and commandeer something for his use for however long he wants it. And that's what's going on here. And this king is benevolent. He says he will return it when he's finished with it. Oh, and then glance down to verses 7 and 8. You see the people in the cloaks over the colt and then spreading the cloaks on the road. What's that about? Well, that's about something that happened in Israel's history in 2 Kings chapter 9 when Jehu was anointed king in the northern kingdom of Israel. That's what the people did. The people kind of gave gave the king the red carpet treatment. It was a signal of royalty. And oh my goodness, we can't neglect what it is they said in verse 9. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What's that? That's a messianic psalm. That's Psalm 118. And it's a psalm which declares God's people's hopes for God's deliverer and God's Messiah that God would send his Savior to to save his people. Hosanna means, oh God, save now. Oh God, save now. And and we can't miss in these verses that, that, that Jesus is intentionally reenacting the messianic prophecy from Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 and 10. And I've included those verses in your outlines here. Zechariah 9, 9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And oh, I've got to mention just one more messianic verse. 
all the way back to the book of Genesis when uh, Jacob gives a messianic prophecy about the coming Messiah. Genesis 49.10, the scepter will not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he comes to whom it belongs and the obedience of the nations is his. And I love verse 11, he will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. My goodness. I mean, how could, how could anybody miss Jesus' entry? And I do have to mention this in Genesis 49, uh, uh, 11 and 12, where, where it says, he will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. What's that all about? That's about the abundance of blessings that will come when the Messiah arrives. Things will be so good, there'll be so much wine, you can wash your clothes in it. Huh? It's an image of abundance, you see. Do you, do you understand what's going on here? This is all about the message. Your king has come. Jesus commandeers the cult. Jesus gets a cult that is, that is fit only for a king. He receives the praise of people. At what other time in Jesus' ministry did Jesus receive words like, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And, and then, of course, there, there were people, there was the pilgrim crowd joining him as he went to Jerusalem. And, and of course, they, the people in Jerusalem would hear the commotion. And they also had heard about this, this holy man who had raised a four-day-old dead guy back alive oh my goodness how could they not miss what was happening now all that we needed to know was what's going to happen how will God's people respond how will the king be received will Jesus come into the city and then march into the temple and preach a spell-binding sermon thus establishing Israel's golden age as it was before will the Romans be overthrown what will happen when Jesus gets into that city do you want to know what happened nothing Nothing. Isn't that what we read here in verse 11? <laughs> he entered Jerusalem, went to the temple. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. <laughs> what? <gasps> what happened to the crowd? Somebody take a wrong turn? Since it was already late, did they, did they forget the spring forward, fall back thing? What? What happened? The message is clear. Your king has come. What happened? Well, this is where we get to question number two. The response. The response of the people to the king. Your king has come. I, I, I just wonder, how many people on that day could have actually said, that's my king. That's my king. Huh? Jerusalem didn't. No. No, Jer Jerusalem didn't. 
Not the city of Jerusalem. No, no, no. And this is where we find out that there were two crowds that day. There was the crowd coming with Jesus, the pilgrim crowd on the way to the city, there for the Passover. And then there was the there was this people in the city itself, you see. And it was that crowd. Well, why, why, why didn't they respond? Because they had been poisoned by the chief priests and the leaders. That's why. You see, see the, chief, the chief priests and the leaders didn't go out to meet Jesus. The, the temple priests didn't go. Caiaphas wasn't out there. The nobility wasn't out there. They weren't. They were nowhere to be seen. And so the, the people, in fact, what we learn, what we learn in John chapter 11, verse 57, it says the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone found out where Jesus was, he should report it so that they might arrest him. They had already poisoned the minds of the people inside the city. No, don't you stay away from him. And you report him if you find him. And, and we learn in Luke's gospel we learn in Luke's gospel, in Luke chapter 19, this is interesting, it says, this was, this was that week, every day Jesus was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and then it says, and the leaders among the people, that would be the nobility, they were trying to kill him, they didn't go outside the city to greet, that would have been the proper protocol, why didn't they do that? Because they hated Jesus. Why? Because they envied Jesus. Why? Was he rich? No. No, he was, he, he's the God-man. He taught as no one had ever taught. And the crowds, their hearts were pulled by him. And, and it was a popularity thing. And they couldn't stand it. John 12, 19 says, Look, the Pharisees uh, cried, The whole world has gone after him. They were full of envy. And I found a good definition for envy this week. Frederick Beckner gave me this definition. Envy is the consuming desire to have everyone else as unsuccessful as you are. (laughs) And that certainly described the chief priests. And I hope it doesn't describe us. Some people say, well... The city was muted because they were afraid the Romans might take it as a riot. And you know what? That's just not true. It's not. There's not a Roman soldier. There wasn't a Roman soldier alive that day that was in the very least bit threatened by Jesus' entry. And I'll tell you why. The Romans knew how to do a triumphal entry. They did. In fact, they called it a Roman triumph. When a Roman general would kill at least 5,000 of the enemy in battle on foreign soil, that Roman general was honored with a Roman triumph. And that general would take his place there in the gold chariot and these beautiful stallions and their shimmering coats would lead ahead and then the soldiers that fought with the, the general would follow and then the booty from battle would follow after that in the parade and then at the very last were the prisoners of war, those ragged and, and wounded prisoners of war some of whom would become slaves, some of whom would be ushered right into the Colosseum for the games they would fight against the gladiators. They were, they were, once they got into the Colosseum, they were not coming out alive. Oh, the Romans, they did it right. 
So that Roman centurion, he looks at Jesus. <laughs> Here's Jesus' parade. <laughs> Jesus' parade consists of lame, blind, and poor from the, the poor areas of Galilee and Bethany. The object of their attention is not a military commander, but a carpenter. And he's not on a stallion. He's on a pony. little colt. And his saddle is not made of leather. It's made of clothes. And that donkey was so scared that it had to have its mama with it on the trip. You know that? That's what Matthew 21, 7 tells us. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks and he sat on them. There's not a Roman soldier alive that day that would have said, that's my king, because that's not how the Romans did it. To them, what mattered was power and might and armor and wealth and possessions and strength. And I just wonder if some of those Roman soldiers are still around today who are under the illusion that power and might and wealth and strength, well, that's, that's how you get your significance, huh? No wonder you wouldn't call Jesus your king. So the city of Jerusalem, no, they wouldn't have said it. The Romans sure didn't say it. What about the disciples? What about the 12? Let's talk about them for a minute. Oh, and, and, you know, let's, uh, let's give them the benefit of a doubt, okay? Let's do that. I, you know what I think? I just think they thought, wow, this is cool. This is just neat. I think they were just enthusiastic about it. They, I, they were. I just, wow, this is all right. Hosanna, Hosanna, God save us now. This is cool. All right. Did they know what was going on? No, they didn't. We know that. John chapter 12, verse 16 says, At first, his disciples did not understand all this. They, they were like my younger son, Brandon, the first time. When, it, when we visited Tulsa, we went to Bell's Amusement Park. And there was Zingo. They've torn it down now, John. And so they, they, the Bell's Amusement Park, and there's a wooden roller coaster. We walked into that park, and Brandon saw that going around. He was like in third grade. He says, I want to get on that. That's fun. That's enthusiastic. I said, okay, let's go. And we get about halfway up that first big hill, and his eyes go, I want off. Dude, you're not getting off. <laughs> Well, he got off in about a minute and a half, but I mean, <laughs> that was funny. <laughs> you know, the disciples, they, they were full of enthusiasm, but here's what I learned. Here's what I learned. Enthusiasm for Christ does not equal faith in Christ. It doesn't. And as Mark has previously told us in his gospel, sometimes the seed of God's word, it falls on ground and it sprouts quickly, all right, but then what happens? It dies a swift death because it's, because of, because it's bad soil, you see. It's bad soil. Who could have said 
That's my king on that day. I, 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 I can't leave this without telling you how Jesus responded to his own entry. Huh? I have to talk about this for just a moment here. We're asking the question, how did people respond? How did Jesus respond? And, and you know how he responded, don't you? Luke's gospel tells us that. He crests the Mount of Olives, has this panoramic view of the city, and there Herod's temple just rises up. It's just, it's just an incredible sight. And Jesus takes a look at that city, and Luke's gospel tells us that he begins literally sobbing. Sobbing. He's weeping like a father holding his rebellious son in his arms. Jesus, in his weeping, held that city in his eyes. Luke chapter 19, verse 41 says, As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but it is now hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you. What's he talking about? He's talking about the destruction of the city that took place in 70 AD. He's talking about Titus who came to Jerusalem and leveled the city. And I think he heard Titus' words which Josephus records when Titus came with his legions to level Jerusalem. Josephus records Titus saying of the city of Jerusalem, you miserable creatures what is it you depend on are not your people dead is not your city in my power are not your own lives in my hands Titus said that and here's the deal if you back up if you just replay the tape and you say okay what what led to that moment where Titus would say that well, if you go back to one decision then then another and then another and then another the very head of that river what started the ball rolling down to that conclusion and what started it was right there the words that Jesus said they will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming the parousia, you did not respond on game day. And so when we think about the disasters that happen in our lives, we think about the tragedies that occur, church family, and we often think, well, this was just one big collapse, like a trap door we fell through. I doubt it. I really doubt it. When we backtrack, we say, well, that happened because of this decision. Why did that decision happen? Because of this one, and then because of this one, and then because of this one. And then, and, and then you back it all the way, and there was this little bitty decision here that at the moment seemed so inconsequential, but 40 years later, there's destruction. And do you know what? Jesus came anyway to that city. He went anyway. And do you know why? Because he's a different kind of king. You see, when presidents go to sites, why do they go there? Because it's good for the president, that's why. Why does the emperor go to a college? Because it's good for the emperor, that's why. But here is a king who goes to the city, not because it's good for him, but because it's for the salvation of them. Here, see, Jesus is so different because every other king asks you to die for that king. This king dies for you. 
And so Jesus went. I still don't have an answer to my question. Hmm. Right? On that day, who could, have, who could have said, that's my king? I mean, I've just about, I just about combed through everybody there, you know. There's Jerusalem. There's the disciples. Not Rome. Not Caiaphas. I got to come up with something because we got to end this sermon. And just as I'm about ready to close my Bible, I glance back down. And I look at verse 6. And I say, of course. The owners of the donkey. Yeah. Yeah, the owners of the donkey. Did you ever wonder what it was like for the owners of the donkey to have given Christ what was needed for the trip? I'd love to ask them some questions like, how did you know? How did you know? I mean, did Christ visit you personally? Or, or did, did, you know that, did you know what your gift was going to be used for? See? Or did, you know, did he just say, I need this, and you, just, you didn't ask questions? Because he's the king. Did it ever occur to you that it was God riding on your donkey? Did you know that all four gospel writers would have your donkey in their story? Did you know that? I think the owner, I think the owner of the donkey could have said, that's my king. And you know what else I think? I think every one of us in here have a donkey. Yeah, it leads us to our third question. You and I have something in our lives which, if given back to God, could move Christ and his word further down the road. Now, what is it? What is it? And by the way, what you have belongs to him anyway. Remember what I said, this language of royal levy? The Lord has need of it. I wonder what I would have done. I just wonder. Because, you know, sometimes I like to keep my animals to myself. Sometimes I think, you know, when God needs something, I act like I don't know he needs it. Or I wonder, I wonder, well, I'm not going to give him my little donkey because it's just a little donkey. See, what, what, what difference can my little donkey make anyway? And then there are moments when I hear his voice and I give and I thank him for the privilege of doing so. What would you have done that day? What would you have done that day? Jesus says, I'm the king. That's the message. It's very clear. Jesus says, I'm in your town this week. Jesus says, you're going to have to deal with me. You're going to have to make up your mind what you really believe about me. Are you going to crown me? Or are you going to crucify me? Church family, you have heard me say this so many times, and I will say it again. You matter to God. You truly do. Every person here, you matter to God. But does God matter to you? Does he? Is he your king? You're going to crown him? Or are you going to crucify him? 
And I have found in my life that Jesus makes those Sunday afternoon marches and his message is clear. What role am I going to have in your life today? Will you allow me to be your king? Everybody has a king too. Don't walk away here thinking, well, I don't have a king. Yes, you do. So it's not a matter of do I have a king. Who's going to be king? And, and this king, he doesn't brandish a sword. He doesn't come in a chariot. He's on a donkey. He's on a little colt. He's the king of peace, but he's still king. And he wants to be the absolute sovereign over my life, over my marriage, over my abilities, over my possessions. And so often I am tempted to want to construct personal embassies within the kingdom of Christ. And you know what those embassies are. They're, they're embassies. An embassy says, not here. You can't touch this space. And you know what? There are no personal embassies in Jesus' kingdom because if he is not Lord over every part of your life, he is not Lord over all of your life. And yet patiently, consistently, and peacefully, and daily, he rides into the town of my life. And if he makes any noise at all, it is the weeping over my unrepentant heart. Because he knows what's going to happen to me if I snub him. He knows that Titus is coming if I reject him. So today is Palm Sunday. But I'm telling you, every day is Palm Sunday. Every day. And we get to choose what we're going to do with Jesus. So what are you going to do? On one side stands the crowd, jeering, baiting, demanding. On the other side stands the carpenter, swollen lips, lumpy eyes, lofty promise. One offers acceptance, the other a cross. One offers flesh and flash, the other offers faith. The crowd says, follow me. Christ says, follow me. The crowd says, fit in. Christ says, stand out. The crowd promises to please. Christ promises to save. And God looks at us and he asks, which will be your choice? Who will be your king? Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, thank you. Thank you for being the fiercest and the sweetest. Thank you for being the lion and the lamb. Thank you for being absolutely sovereign and utterly humble. Thank you for the crucifixion and thank you for the resurrection. There is no one like you. Please receive our worship from hearts that wholeheartedly pursue you. Amen.